I think we all realize that uh, on Easter Sunday, you might as well stand up and uh, wish some of those people who are here uh, Merry Christmas because you're not going to see them again till the next Easter. Uh, but I didn't really expect we'd go from extra large crowd this morning to seemingly extra small uh, tonight. We've got some of our regulars uh, out, it appears, but I'm glad that you're here this evening. Uh, just a sort of housekeeping note, I, I mentioned this morning I'm going to be out next week. I'm going to be holding a little meeting in center. And then, of course, the following week, we're going to have our singing with the Spirit seminar, and we're going to finish that up that Sunday night. And the fellow, Myron Bruce, who's leading that, he's actually going to be doing a sermon and song that Sunday evening. So, in other words, I won't be speaking on Sunday night for two weeks after this. And, of course, these lessons go along with the books that we have. And I know not everybody probably keeps up with all their reading at all times. That's okay. Things happen. Uh, But, at any rate, all that's to say, I want you to just keep on reading. Next week's lesson would be on heaven. The following week is on hell. We're just going to skip those two because I want us to stay with the reading and stay on track and use those books, those of you who are, as daily devotional books. I know some are. I know some others have read way ahead and read a a whole bunch of it, and that's okay too, but we'll just uh, pick back up with hope uh, in three weeks. So we'll miss a a couple of lessons there, but uh, I want us these lessons, I really want them to tie in to the reading that we're hopefully a lot of us doing during the week, and so we're just going to, to stay on that track. With all that said, if you did your reading this week, uh, I don't know about you, but I found it a little bit strange. Um, these are, of course, written by different people every week. You probably noticed that, and maybe you like some of the writers better than others. Abby and I have, have talked about that. Maybe some of their styles speak to you, some don't so much. But what I found unusual about the reading this week was that out of the five passages, ostensibly about resurrection, only two of them really had to do with resurrection. And of those two, one of them was about the resurrection of Jesus. It was... Uh, Thomas there with him, and when the title of this unit is Last Things, presumably when we're thinking about the resurrection, we're thinking primarily of our resurrection, the general resurrection at the end of time, and even though that's related to Jesus' resurrection, it's not quite the same thing, and so really only one of the five passages related to that. Uh, Resurrection was barely touched on in a lot of ways, and I found that uh, odd to say the least. Not, nothing that was brought out was incorrect. There was good teaching in there, but if we're talking about studying these words, well, it didn't really have very much to do with that. And all that's to say, I think this is one more example of how a lot of times we don't really know what to make of what the New Testament teaches on this subject. We all have some vague sense. If I asked you tonight if you believe in the resurrection, everybody here tonight is going to say, yes, absolutely. But we all seem to have this vague sense that we continue on after death. We're going to live again in one way or another. But what does that have to do with Jesus' resurrection? How are those two things related? And when we read, as we did this morning, we're going to talk about this more tonight, 
when we read what Scripture actually has to say about our bodies being raised from the dead, well, that just doesn't seem to compute with what our general sort of conception of the resurrection is, this idea, this common view that we have just being pure uh, spirit in eternal existence with God in heaven. And so instead of taking what is clearly taught in Scripture and When I say that we have trouble with this, I'm including myself in this. We're all sort of muddling along in this. A lot of this is is very hazy stuff. And some of the things I talked about today and I talk about tonight with bodily resurrection is is something that I've just come to understand a little bit better even myself over the last few years. And certainly my thinking is uh, not always entirely clear on it either. But instead of taking what is clearly taught in Scripture, and bodily resurrection is very clearly taught, instead of taking that and using it to interpret and to help us understand what is somewhat less clear, organizing our thoughts about heaven around that, we do it the other way around. We take what we think we know about our heavenly existence, and then we just try to sort of shoehorn the resurrection into that. And that's exactly backwards. That's the opposite of how we should be approaching this. And so tonight, we'll try, we we talked a good bit about this this morning, and we'll try not to tread on any of the same ground, but I want us to briefly define what we mean by resurrection. We'll look at some historical context to try to understand uh, what makes this Christian teaching so unique in the first century, and then we'll talk finally about our our own resurrection and make just a a few observations about that. First of all, defining the term, since this is a word study primarily, let's state first of all what we're not talking about when we talk about resurrection. We are not talking about the resuscitation of people who eventually go on to die. Now, we find a lot of examples of that in Scripture, don't we? Um, in the Old Testament, there's Elijah who w- raises the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elisha raises the Shumanite woman's son, 2 Kings chapter 4. There are obviously several examples of this in the New Testament. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, uh, John chapter 11. He raises Jairus' daughter, Matthew chapter 9, and parallels. Uh, Peter uh, raises Dorcas, Acts chapter 9. Every one of these persons was brought back to life at the moment. But in preparing this lesson, I couldn't have gone and looked up his number and called up Lazarus and said, hey man, I'm having a lesson on resurrection. I'd like you to come by and tell the people about your experience because Lazarus died. Every one of these people went on to die. That's not what we're talking about then when we're talking about resurrection. We're talking here about the resurrection raising up to new life of Jesus Christ, and then by extension to all of his people, all of those who are believers in Jesus. Those two things are intimately related. We saw that at length in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Our resurrection is rooted in Christ's resurrection. If he's not raised, then None of the dead are raised. We've got no hope. But in fact, Christ was raised, and that's how we know that we will be too. In other words, resurrection is a New Testament doctrine. 
We can't go to the Old Testament to read about and to study about resurrection. Strictly speaking, the concept does not exist in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean there are not shadowy indications of it. And in fact, some of the New Testament writers and some of the church fathers would go back and search the Old Testament and they would find some of those indications and write about them. But it's not straightforward. There is no Hebrew word that indicates the concept of resurrection. And to cut the Sadducees a little bit of a break here, we beat up the Sadducees in our Wednesday night class on Acts a good bit, but you know the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, might should give them a little bit of credit, Uh, that's probably why they didn't, because it's not straightforwardly taught in the Old Testament. So we have to look at the New Testament. It's a Greek word. The Greek word is anastasis, and it means arising up or to raise up. It refers to an event or an occurrence, and that noun is pervasive in the New Testament. It's so pervasive, there's no reason to try to even bother listing how many times it occurs or to give you a sample of these scriptures. But just think about in the book of Acts how key it is to the apostolic preaching. Uh, Not only do we see Jesus and the apostles talking about it in chapter 1, but Peter mentions it in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter mentions it in his sermon at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3. Peter mentions it standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. He mentions it again when they call him back to the carpet in Acts chapter 5, on and on and on. Paul mentions it on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17. You can't imagine the preaching of the apostles without them talking about the resurrection of Jesus. This was the cornerstone of their preaching. Try to imagine Paul's letters without any references to the resurrection. His letters are are replete with these sorts of references. So the resurrection of Jesus was decisive for the early Christians. And that's also what resulted in the rejection of their preaching in a lot of cases. And this is why I think it's helpful for us to understand the historical context of this doctrine of the resurrection. We talked a little bit this morning about the confusion that exists even in our own world surrounding life after death. Uh, You know how some people believe essentially in annihilation, that is, once you die, you're dead. That's all that there is. On the other hand, it seems like a lot of people these days tend to believe in things like reincarnation. Uh, Others believe in this sort of Buddhist-style philosophy where we become one with the universe because we're all grappling for answers to life after death. Well, that same sort of confusion existed in the ancient world. Humanity's always been grappling with this problem. For pagans, death was a problem with no answer. Now, unlike those annihilationists, pagans believed in life after death in a strict sense. That is, they believed that life goes on, things continue. But it wasn't anything like the Christian hope. You had two main schools of thought. One is best reflected by Homer. Everyone in the ancient world knew Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those were almost like the Bible for Greeks. And in Homer, you see, uh, for example, Odysseus goes down into Hades, and what he finds there is that everyone is like a a pale shadow. They're just a sort of reflection of what they were in this life, and they all wish they could have bodies again. They wish they could go back and live it up like they did on earth. Uh, Every one of them would rather be, and I forget now who says it. I wish I'd written this down, but it 
It's one of the, the great heroes who's down there, Achilles or Ajax or someone like that, who says he would rather go back and live as the meanest, lowest slave on the earth than to continue there in Hades, even though he's among the honored dead. He's famous. Uh, what you find there is that most people don't even have any recollection of what life was like. Odysseus has to give them something to drink so that they can remember things. So that was one conception. Yeah, it continues on, but it's this shadowy existence that really is not even like an existence almost at all. The other school of thought is best represented by Plato and other philosophers who held that you continue and that it's your soul separate from your body. And unlike in Homer, where all those guys would like to have a body again, for Plato and other philosophers, well, why would you want a body? Disembodied existence is better. You've been freed from that material prison. Now you're just a pure spirit floating along there. The one thing that was clear to either of these schools of thought, resurrection just didn't happen. That was a word that was not ever used by these pagans. They believed in life after death. They believed in ghosts and spirits and visions and hallucinations and any other thing you might imagine. But the one thing they didn't believe in was resurrection because that meant new bodies. That meant you would be raised up to live this new sort of life. For Jews, some of them believed much like those uh, pagans who followed Homer's line. The Sadducees stand out here. That is, uh, when you went to the grave, Sheol is the Jewish term for it. And that is, it was this shadowy sort of existence where you continued on, but it was almost like a non-life. Uh, others had the same sort of view that Plato did, uh, this pure disembodied spirit. Philo of Alexandria stands out here. But a lot of Jews in the first century had started to believe in this idea of resurrection. And even though we don't find it in the Old Testament, it had sprung up in that period between the two Testaments. And we can read some other writings outside the Bible where they talk about this. But even here, this was an eventual resurrection. I mentioned this morning, Martha alludes to this in John chapter 11. The idea was that after you died, God would look after the soul until at the last day he would raise up your body, and that's when he would uh, judge the world. Now that sounds a lot like what we read Christians say. But the Christian hope is still different than that too, as we'll talk about here in just a moment. This is what made... Christians going around talking about Jesus being raised by God from the dead so surprising. Pagans obviously were shocked by such a concept. They couldn't believe it. They didn't believe in anything like this. But even though it fits on that Jewish sort of map of thought, it still burst all the bounds of typical uh, Jewish ideas here in a lot of different ways. There are several we could name. I just want to think about three here. For one thing, for Jews, resurrection wasn't really that important. It's something a lot of them had started to believe in, but it was on the periphery. It's not something that was central to their ideas. But for Christians, it is central. We already mentioned that. Think about Acts. Think about Paul. Imagine the apostles trying to preach about Jesus without preaching the fact that he's been raised from the dead. You can't. This was the centerpiece of their belief. Uh, secondly, in Judaism, as we said, resurrection was a one-time event at the end 
of time. God's going to raise people up when he wraps up this world, wraps up all of history. But Christianity splits that in two. No one, even these Jews who believed in the idea of resurrection, no one before Jesus ever thought of this idea of any such thing as God raising up someone to new life right in the middle of history. No one thought of anything other than this resurrection at the end. But for Christians, Jesus is raised in advance of that final day. It's anticipation of what's going to happen to us. It's a guarantee that God's going to do the same thing to us and for us that he did for Jesus. Because of this third big difference, Christians believed that God had called them to be partners in his work in this world. That's the way Paul winds up his chapter on resurrection, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. God's work that he began there in Christ would be completed at the end of time when Christ came back. And so in the interim, Christians were empowered by the Spirit to keep on doing that sort of work that would be part of God's future and that he'd honor there when he wrapped up everything. Now, there are other differences that we could note here in terms of the historical context, but my point is each one of these became central for Christians. The idea that the resurrection is central God has raised up Jesus, and that's a guarantee of what he's going to do for us, and because of that, we need to get busy uh, working. The expectation was, in the end, all Christians would be made just like Christ. So the upshot of all of this is that the Christian hope was something really extraordinarily different in the first century. No one had ever thought of anything like this. But unfortunately, we seem to have lost some sense of that original hope in our day and age. We think of going to heaven, going to hell as a sort of one-stage journey. We, got, we die, and then we go to the place we're going. And that raises some other questions. We don't really know what to think about all this. If I, I remember thinking as a kid, well, if that's the case, you know, I remember hearing sermons on things like paradise and uh, uh, Tartarus, you know, the place where uh, in Hades, the realm where those who are uh, wicked go. And I remember kind of thinking, well, it, if you go automatically kind of to a foretaste of where you're going, then what's the point of being raised up, what does that even mean? What's the point of a, a judgment? You already sort of know where you're going. How does all of this work? And you see, the problem is this sort of one-stage thing, we go immediately wherever we're going, and that's where we're going to stay forever. This is a pretty serious distortion of the hope we actually see in the New Testament. Bodily resurrection isn't just some weird thing that we can't really make sense of and can't figure out where to fit in all the rest of this. The resurrection of the body is what gives shape to everything else that we read about. It's what gives shape to God's purpose. It's what helps make sense of how all this is one big story from Genesis to Revelation, creation to consummation. And it helps us understand how our resurrection relates to Jesus' resurrection. 
And I want you to just look with me at some passages. I didn't even put these up there because I'd really like us to, to look at and think about them. And some of them are lengthy. But consider briefly some ways the New Testament expresses this hope. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says there, our citizenship is in heaven. Everyone here tonight knows that passage. And the way we usually take that is to mean that, therefore, one day, we're going to go there. We're going to go to heaven. We're, that's where we belong. When we're done there, we'll, we'll retire to where our citizenship is. But notice, it takes this out of context. Look at what Paul says in the very next line, for our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This isn't about us going to heaven where our citizenship is. Paul says Jesus will come from there to us and transform our bodies into glorious bodies like him. He'll do that through the same power that he subjects all things to himself. And so the point is, Jesus is the model for our resurrection. We're going to be like him. And he's also the means of our resurrection. Because he was raised, we know that we'll be raised too. Or flip a page or two over in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. Not one day you'll go to be with him. Paul says here, you already have life in him. That life is hidden now, but one day he's going to appear, and then that will burst forth in a glorious new form. Romans chapter 8. I mentioned some verses in Romans 8 this morning, but not these. Romans 8, beginning in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. If we have the Spirit of God in us, which is something God grants to us when we respond in faith and repentance and baptism, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, then Paul says God will give life to your mortal bodies in just the same way that he raised Jesus from the dead. Now, there are other passages we could note here. We looked at length at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, and so for time's sake, I don't want to get back into that this evening, but... Uh, just to sort of wrap this up, and I know there's a lot more we could say about resurrection, and I, I'm hoping we're just causing some wheels to turn here about this. Let's think about just some key questions to sort of sum all this up. First of all, who's going to be raised? Well, all people are going to be raised ultimately. You look at John chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says that here. 
Uh, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a special sense in which Christians will be raised to eternal life, but ultimately everyone's going to be raised, some to that eternal life, some are going to face a, a second death, resurrection of judgment, he calls it here. What will happen at the resurrection? We touched on this this morning. We'll have new bodies. That was read in our scripture a few moments ago. Tristan read it for us. Those bodies will be imperishable. Those bodies will be incorruptible. I admit, that's weird. <laughs> this is difficult for us to think about. It takes us using our imagination. And like I said this morning, uh, one way C.S. Lewis tried to imagine this is that think of these bodies as more real, more solid, more substantial than what we have now. You know, you think about when, somebody, when somebody's gotten really sick and they're just sort of wasting away and you see them and what do you say? You say, well, they're just a shadow of themselves. Well, I think that gives us, by analogy, some way to think about it. Our current bodies are just a shadow of what those imperishable, incorruptible bodies are going to be like. And in particular, that new body is going to be immortal. This mortal must put on immortality, Paul says. That is, not subject to injury, not subject to illness, not subject to decay. None of those destructive forces can touch it. And how can we, with our finite minds, conceive of a physical body that's not subject to those forces? Well, we can't. And I think maybe that gives us some insight as to just why Jesus' body was so strange. It was physical, and yet it wasn't capable of decaying in those ways. It was somehow different. Well, ours are going to be like that too. You see, when we think of immortality, we just assume that that means disembodied immortality, that our spirits, our souls are going to float away. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says we're going to have immortal bodies. And so as I've heard some preachers say before, uh, you don't, or you are a soul, you have a body. Well, that's not entirely accurate. Paul talks about when we're raised, we're going to have immortal bodies. God is going to give those to us. So why are we going to have new bodies? That's really the third and final question we kind of touched on this this morning. And even though we can't give a great answer to this, uh, I think one thing is clear. I don't imagine anybody here really believes this, but we sort of have this common stereotype that when we float away here, we're going to be sort of floating on clouds and playing harps, things like that. That's at least the images that all sort of enter in our, in our mind about heaven. But, but there are glimpses, at least in Scripture. Numerous passage, half a dozen or more in the New Testament, talk about us reigning with Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what that entails, but I know it can't be just empty words. That has to mean something. Or consider Revelation chapter 22. 
Chapter 21 and chapter 22, of course, give us glimpses of the eternal city. Chapter 22, verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. When we read things like that, the tree of life, rivers flowing, this is an image. The imagery here is of a new garden a new Eden, one that's better than the original, one that's perfected. Maybe we could call it the garden in its original intention, what God designed for creation before humanity marred it with sin. Remember what we talked about this morning, God's renewing creation? Well, again, I don't know exactly what all that means, but I do know that humanity was placed in the garden to tend it, to take care of it, I think this image that we have here of a new garden suggests we're going to have something to do. In some way, God's going to give us something to do in eternity. These are only glimpses, and when we start to fixate on this too much, I I think that uh, we can get lost in hypothetical questions. But what I am suggesting is these these are signposts. These are pointing us toward something, and we get some clues, at least, to the answers. As Paul says, right now, you know, one day we're going to see face-to-face, and we're going to know then, but right now we see in a, in a mirror. It's dark, it's shadowy, it's just a reflection. So we can only put forward our, our best guesses, but what I am suggesting to you is that some of what we read in Scripture is a good deal different from the common conceptions that we have about this. And my prayer in sort of rethinking this idea of resurrection is that this will give us a renewed hope because I think what we really read on the pages of Scripture is a lot greater and a lot better than we've ever possibly imagined. I have a good, good friend. He's a member in Spicewood, and he's passed on now. But he, he talked to me once. He said he'd asked another preacher this. You know, heaven pictured as this place of streets of gold and he said well I don't I don't really care anything about gold I like the grass and the trees I want to be out in the world like that and so of course I said well Ray those are just uh, those are just images I don't think you need to be taking them literally uh, but the point is even those things the conceptions we have are in a lot of ways sort of misconceptions compared to what we really read when we start to study some of these things and I'll I'll say this finally if we don't think about bodily resurrection as being intimately related to this idea of a future hope, you know, if we aren't bodily raised from the dead, if we're just an immortal soul that continues on in this sort of nebulous spirit existence, how has death been defeated? If you're just an immortal soul out there floating that can't really be killed, well, then death wasn't defeated at all. Your body's still dead. Nothing changed. In fact, that view isn't terribly different from those pagan views. And yet the pagans realized, no, this is something really different. We've never heard anything like this before, and that's why it was a scandal to them. So my hope is we'll at least uh, rethink some of these things. I think they're a tremendous source of hope and comfort for us if, of course, we're right with God. We recall that some are going to be raised to a resurrection of judgment. 
That's something we all need to be prepared to face. So if you're here this evening and there's something amiss in your life, you need to make changes in order to make sure that you're ready for that great and terrible day of the Lord. You have the opportunity to make those changes now while we stand and while we sing.